This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It was a shocking medical emergency played out on live television. A young athlete in peak physical condition suffered cardiac arrest on the playing field. And that is what happened to 24-year-old Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin Monday night during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. What followed is also shocking but not surprising in today's social media misinformation machinery. Within minutes of Hamlin's stunning and terrible collapse, anti-vaxxers and right-wing provocateurs sought to link the injury that left him in critical condition with the COVID vaccine without any evidence. And personally, I was even more shocked when I heard a local news anchor question a doctor about a possible link. And yes, folks, I monitored the competition so you don't have to. On the positive side, there's been an outpouring of support for Damar Hamlin and his family and an increased interest in how this can happen and how defibrillators can save lives. If you have questions or comments, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Anthony Housefather, Liberal Member of Parliament for Mount Royal, politician with a track record of calling out online hate and misinformation, and Dr. Christopher Labos, a cardiologist and epidemiologist. Thank you both for joining us. Welcome. Hello. Hey, Libby. Thank you for having us. Okay. Uh, Let us begin with Dr. Labos. Uh, Dr. Labos, um, please explain how this incident can happen. I mean, it looked like he had been on the receiving end of a fairly routine tackle. So how uh, can an event like this happen, please? Well, so we do have to speculate a little bit because obviously we aren't there and we aren't privy to what's going on in the hospital and what are the results of any testing that might have happened there. But if we work under the assumption that he was a perfectly healthy 24-year-old that had no pre-existing medical problems, the question becomes what could have provoked the arrhythmia that put him into cardiac arrest? And there is a condition called commotio cordis where a blow to the center of the chest can actually provoke an arrhythmia if you strike the breastbone just over the heart with, significant, with, with sufficient force at exactly the right moment in the cardiac cycle when the heart is vulnerable to arrhythmias because it's in the process of repolarizing. This is not a common thing, but it has happened. There have been uh, just under 300 cases reported over the past 30 years ever since the U.S. registry on this condition was put in place. So it is something that happens. It tends to happen in younger people. The average age for this condition is, is about 15 years old. And you usually see it in sports like baseball and hockey where you have a puck or a ball that is projected at high speeds and can strike people in the chest. But it has happened in football. And in the absence of any information to the contrary, the most likely hypothesis is that it was the tackle and the you know elbow that he might have gotten to the chest that may have provoked the arrhythmia in this case. Can you explain what the cycle, the, the, the heart beating cycle that you alluded to there, how does that work? Mm-hmm. So it's electricity that drives your heart. Your heartbeat, the electrical rhythm of your heart, is based on a cycle of electricity. And the way that your heart muscle knows to beat, knows to contract, is it gets an electrical signal that opens up certain electrical channels that makes it beat. So those channels open and then those channels close and the electricity of the heart is reset and that process is called depolarization and repolarization. And right at the beginning of the repolarization cycle, when the heart is resetting itself electrically for the next heartbeat, you have a window of frankly just a few milliseconds where a blow or an electrical stimulus or something can provoke an uh, an arrhythmia. So it's a very hard thing to do on purpose, but it is something that can happen by accident. 
um, you know, rarely, but it does happen. Boy, talk about uh, wrong place, wrong time. Uh, let's bring in Anthony Housefather. So it was, uh, you know, speaking of a window of, of seconds, that's about how long it took for the anti-vaxxers and, and conspiracy theories to, theorists to, to jump in on that. W- were you surprised? I mean, I, I, I would hate to say that I was surprised given how common this has become in, in recent years, but it's shocking to see people with no evidence, uh, no medical correlation, making preposterous claims. You know, they don't even know if the man was vaccinated or if he had been recently vaccinated, making the claim that somehow the vaccines were the responsible for this incident on the football field and for, you know, other uh, you know, unnamed sudden deaths of young people playing sports. And, and it just frustrated me to see that because it wasn't just one person that did it. It was multiple right-wing commentators that did it one after the other. Uh, right. And Dr. Labos, I happened to be watching when I, I, you explained how this happened and, and, and then you were questioned about this. I thought you handled that very, uh, very deftly, you know, talking about trying to be logical. But does this surprise you? Uh, no, because this issue of young athletes dying, this has been this issue that keeps popping up, even though it has been like systematically debunked. I mean, there is a list floating around the Internet that people love to throw out and they say, look at all these young athletes who have died because of the of the COVID vaccine. Uh, but if you actually go through the list, and actually I wrote an article about this a little while back, so anybody who's interested can search online and find it. But when you go through the list, you find out that, you know, some of these people were not that young. Like one name on the list is Hank Rogers, you know, the baseball legend who died. He was in his late 70s. So, I mean, that's not real. And he died of other unrelated reasons. You have lists of people who died of cancer. You have people who died or who developed complications before even the vaccines were available. So there's this list circulating, but it keeps getting reshared uncritically because if you actually go through it and look at each of these names, you start to realize that a lot of those names shouldn't be there and don't actually support the case people are trying to make. So people are trying to link this vaccine to, uh, you know, what happened here without knowing the very basic facts. Like, when was last time he was vaccinated? If he was vaccinated over six months ago, I think you're going to have a really, really hard time linking that to what happened now when you have clear video of him getting a blow to the chest and saying, well, you know, but this is an explanation. This is something that happens. And so it's all about looking at what the evidence actually says. The problem with social media is that a lot of people just reshare stuff automatically just because it fits their preconceived notions without actually digging into it to see, is what I'm sharing actually factually true? And when it comes to young athletes dying from the vaccine, a lot of the stuff that people are saying is just factually untrue, because a lot of these people are either not dead or had their episodes before the vaccines were actually available. Wow. Um, I, I mean, it never ceases to... Uh I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not surprised by it anymore, but I'm sort of stunned by it. And I, I was almost thinking that the, uh, this anti-vaccine hysteria had, had subsided, you know, now that we're well into what fifth boosters and, uh, most of the restrictions have been lifted. So I don't know, but it's really quite, quite stunning. Uh, what can be done to fight against this, Anthony Housefather? Well, I mean, I mean, one of the things is just speaking truth, right? Like what they've taken is a, is a piece of evidence, right? There, there's a very rare um, incidence of myocarditis or pericarditis, which are inflammations of, of the heart lining um, that have occurred in, in young men, um, mostly, but in others as well who get the vaccines. It's very, very rare and they don't involve people suddenly dropping dead of cardiac arrest. I mean, it's not what happened here. And you've got to debunk that. You've got to do what Chris did. You've got to do what others did by calling it out and saying, look, you have clear visual evidence of what likely happened. What you're saying has absolutely no bearing in reality. Um, and you're, you're stretching a tiny segment of information that you have to create a false correlation and to create false evidence. And that's, that's what just keeps happening on the internet, on Twitter in particular, but in all kinds of social media, where people who are conspiracy theorists find ways to take one random piece of information um, and then use that to create something that's completely false and people just believe it. And we have a responsibility, I think, would be on your show, um, you know, all of us, to call that out. 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to give the numbers out again if people have something to say about this. Uh, most of our audience are pretty sensible people. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And as I pointed out earlier, there is a, a positive side if uh, such a thing is possible, and that is we learned that a defibrillator was used to resuscitate uh, Damar on the field. And I think that sparked an increased interest in how a defibrillator can be used for cardiac arrest. Uh, uh, Dr. Labos, can you talk about that a bit? Right. So what most people think that cardiac arrest means that you're in flatline. Um, you know, they're, they're very used to seeing this on TV and, and, and movies where you, where, you know, it's a beep, it's the flatline on the monitor. That's actually not true. When somebody has an out of hospital cardiac arrest, usually when that sort of thing happens, they're in what's called the malignant arrhythmia. So it's an arrhythmia that is so severe that the heart can no longer beat in an organized fashion. And so it's quivering, but it's not actually beating. And when your heart is quivering, it can't actually push the blood to the rest of your body. That's why people lose consciousness. That's why they don't have a pulse. And the problem with that is that if you're not moving blood around, you're not delivering oxygen to your vital organs, most notably your brain. So CPR is a very useful tool to use in first aid. You're basically pushing on the heart to try to move the blood forward a little bit. So it does help a bit, but it's a temporizing measure. The thing that's going to save somebody's life if they're having this type of arrhythmia is a shock from a defibrillator. So if you can shock somebody's heart and re-put their heart back into a normal rhythm, that's what's going to save their life. And the thing that is going to determine how good a prognosis you have after a cardiac event like this is how quickly somebody delivers that shock. Because the longer your brain goes without oxygen, the more damage occurs. If you can shorten that interval, you may be able to get out of this without any significant neurological complications. So that's going to be the big factor. And the reason why the prognosis from commotial cortis, what, what, uh, what happened here, the reason why that prognosis has increased over the past 30 years is because the fibrillators are now so much more common and, you know, available in sporting arenas and other public venues like this. And do you need uh, training to be able to use one? I mean, I could show you how to use one in about 10 minutes, and then you would be an expert because it's not you who delivers the shock. The machine is going to deliver the shock if the person is having the arrhythmia. You don't have to do anything beyond bringing the machine to the patient and attaching the pads to their skin. So once you show people what's actually involved and explain to them that it's not actually them who's going to make the decision, the the machine is going to do it automatically, you realize it's not a very technically challenging thing to do. I mean, it is. it can easily be incorporated into basic first aid courses. And if we taught it regularly, and, you know, I've often said that we should be teaching how to use these things in schools, um, it's not very complicated. And the more people are comfortable and familiar with it, the more likely they are to actually use them when an emergency happens. Okay. I'm going to take a couple of quick calls. We've got Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Um, I don't understand why people have so much objections to taking vaccine and when they're sick, they will put anything in their body to get better. What's the difference? Uh, don't ask me. <laughs> don't don't ask me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think uh, we were talking about social media, and I think that has a lot to do with it. And, there, uh, you know, I was talking to somebody interesting about that we may be in what some people are calling a post-truth age where, you know, celebrity or somebody else just put something up on social media and people believe it for some reason. Very gullible. Okay. Thanks, Sita. Oh, I did something wrong with that call. Okay. Daniel will fix it. Um, yep. Okay. Um, so I am looking at the clock and uh, we're close to having to wrap up here. Anthony Housefather, what would you like to leave us with on this? I would just like to leave your listeners with, please do not rely upon things that you randomly read on the internet to get medical advice. Um, please consult with your physician. Please, you know, read up from reasonable mainstream uh, newspapers, uh, you know, radio outlets, whatever. Just, just don't rely on completely false information that's out there, and it's all over there about vaccines, in particular uh, the COVID vaccine. 
Okay, Dr. Labos, last word to you. Yeah, I think basically the same sort of idea. If we want good information to be there, amplify good sources, so amplify reputable media. Um, feel free to pay for media. I mean, everybody wants good journalism, but they want to get it for free. So, um, you know what? You have to support and you have to amplify the good stuff out there because Thank that's you. what's going to get the information out there to people. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Christopher Labos and Anthony Housefather. And Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Right, people, we are taking a quick break. And when we come back January, okay, uh, it is the month for a lot of things, including returning gifts that may not have worked out. And customer service, what is that? Why don't we have it anymore? Um, I just had a customer service really bad experience, and I'm sure a lot of people have too. Uh, let me give the numbers to call. I want to hear your stories. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back with that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's January. The bills for the holiday gifting season are coming due, and so are the deadlines for returning items that don't work. Customer service seems to just be getting worse. I had a horrible, nasty experience trying to change a gift that didn't fit. I'm anxious to vent about it because it also highlights a really misleading written return policy. And of course, I'd like to hear from you about your experiences. And it comes as retailers are tightening up on returns. Some online outlets have started charging for the privilege. And uh, we've all been hearing about the season's travel nightmare. And the offending airlines couldn't even be bothered to communicate with customers, let alone fix things. And often these days, there's no name or human who is reachable, even for media, frankly. And the best you're going to do is a chat bot. The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Lisa Hutchison, a retail expert and consultant with J.C. Williams. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Am I being too harsh there? I think there's some reality in that for sure. And it's driven, you know, as a consumer and as somebody that works with the retailers and the, and the businesses, there's, there's a side to both stories and, and certainly challenges. Uh, and it's, it's been an interesting season for sure. Okay, that's one way of putting it. Um, we have people lining up to tell their stories. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you mine a little bit because it does, uh, um, I think highlight a misleading. Now, for uh, most people, uh, if you see a return policy and it says exchanges only, you assume, or I assumed, like I got a gift. It didn't fit. I, I went back to the scene of the crime. Uh, they did not have any sizes. I'll, I'll even say the retailers, Joe Fresh. Um, it was a junk heap, no sizes in anything. And when you see that return policy, you assume that if you don't find what you're looking for, you get a gift card or a credit note or something like that. Nope, absolutely not. You exchange it on the spot or you are out of luck and Galen Weston keeps the money. I mean, um, it, is that uh, I consider that a misleading written return policy? Uh, am I wrong there, Lisa? Yeah, and it, I don't think it's misleading because I think they do say that. But at the same time, is that good customer service? And so I think the retailer in those sorts of instances has to really understand, you know, the value of the customer. And you know, there's there's the retailer's point of view in terms of. Um, trying to, you know, keep the sale and not lose it to a return. But at the same time, for sure, when there's inventory that's out of stock, when you, when it can be, um, months behind, you know, that, you know, maybe the purchase was made in early December and then, you know, you're returning it in January, you know, there could be out of stocks. 
Well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I even thought, well, I'm I'm happy to get some pajamas. They didn't have pajamas in 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 my size, so uh, I mean, it was ridiculous. And and uh, the manager in there was completely rude. And uh, you know, it's 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 too bad because what I did, and I had these gift receipts, is that I I gave it back to the person who gave it to me because they would be able to get um their the money returned on their credit card uh mm-hmm. if they can show that it's their credit card but it kind of ruins the gift for for the person who gives the gift right yeah and typically in january especially after holiday you know it, it product is sold out and so they're waiting the retailer is just starting to get in their new um their new collection and so a lot of, you know, even this, that same product is unlikely still going to be available. Right. But I mean, personally, I wasn't fussy. I was going to take pajamas mm. like they don't yeah. have that. It was a junk heap and the manager was really rude. Um, yeah. And so I think that's, you know, um, you know, sort of speaks to staff shortages, which is a huge issue right now for retailers. And, uh, you know, and, and so what does that mean for us moving forward? And I think as we start to see what's going to happen from a return from, from what retailers are going to have, uh, looking forward is definitely how are they going to deal with these staff shortages? And, uh, and what does that do to customer service? And how can they improve that customer experience? I mean, you know, again, when we look at the travel nightmare, it, there was a terrible snowstorm, you know, and I, I've been, I'm sure you've been, most of us have been in airports w- with huge delays. And all you want is the courtesy of some communications. And these large companies, they don't even think they have to communicate. Yeah, or they don't have the people that are trained and able to be able to deal with the the crisis. Um, and well, the why would they be hired for communication staff? I know they have them. Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> not available. What, and I what think does that, that mean? To something, you know, what's really important to the customer and what we talk to our customers about when they're, you know, our retail and, and, and service businesses is really being authentic and being and understand the trust that you need to develop. And this, you know, what you're describing is it really taints the customer on this retailer, this business with these kinds of these experiences. And it really turns them off and it speaks to what retailers and businesses have to do moving forward in terms of getting better. Because, you know, as much as it may be frustrating to hear the truth from what's actually happening, uh, it's better than nothing. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges when nobody's actually communicating. It's just making it a bad situation even worse. You know, when there's a large brand involved and people on the phone, hang on, I'm going to get to you momentarily. Uh, I have found the only thing that works, and I think this speaks to possibly a, a very young staff people being in these kinds of customer service roles, is if you tweet and make the tweet as nasty as possible, then you'll get a tweet back from somebody who says, direct message me and, and we'll deal with that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, and that's not the right way to do it. Um, and, you know, I think that it's it's been a really lost opportunity for some of these brands to go back and have that trust and have that um, be able to provide that kind of service. And particularly in the digital age, when it is so much more transparent what's happening, um, brands just have to get better at making sure they have the right people managing uh, the communication to the customer. Well, and, you know, frankly, there are some companies that do it right and, you know, a lot of them that do it wrong. And, and again, people, I'm going to get to you in a moment. But um, part of the issue, okay, so we have a lot of online retailers who have tra- started to charge for returns mm-hmm. because they are very expensive. I get that. But there's, and I've never uh, entirely got the business model where 
with online shopping, there are 30% returns. I don't quite get it. But the problem is that even if you say, okay, um, I will go to physically shop in store for something where I don't know if it'll fit or whatever, but they don't keep stock in store. You kind of have to. Yeah. So if you're not there right away when the products still come, they come in for sure, you may have stock outs and it does send you the 20 to 30%. And you're right is the return rate for online shopping. Um, that is, was particularly driven during the pandemic when people were buying, you know, if they didn't know what size they were, they were buying sort of two sizes and they were returning one. And that was one of the things that was driving the return rate up. And the other reason the return rates um, in online shopping are up is just when it does get to you, if you haven't seen it in a store, it's caused by, you know, poor fit or the style or the fabric wasn't what you were looking for. So that's what a lot of it is driven. Um, And, you know, so the retailers are just trying to figure out a way to reduce that, uh, to reduce that return. Well, yeah, uh, if you have the stock in a physical place that people can get, I mean, shoes, you know, one of my colleagues told me his wife orders seven pairs of shoes and keeps one. I, I don't want to buy shoes online because they all fit differently. Mm-hmm. But but if I go to the store, I won't find they may them not there. Have the size. Yeah. Well, I they know, may not that, have it at all. Sense. That's an online yeah. purchase. And so I don't know the solution, but uh, let's hear from a couple of our listeners. Lisa in Toronto. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine, how are you? I'm fine, and I wish you the best for 2023, you and yours. Thank you very much. Same to you. Happy New Year. Thank you. I just wanted to share a little story that I just experienced yesterday with Wayfair, uh, which is one of the big online shopping uh, retailers. I'm computer illiterate. I'm a senior citizen. I don't do online shopping. I have a son who has five kids who just moved out to New Brunswick because of the housing problem here in Ontario. He couldn't afford to stay here. It was the only province where he could find something that would accommodate his family. Well, they needed a couch. They they moved. They don't have a couch. So in early December, my son went on Wayfair, found a couch. So I paid $1,200 for this couch along with all the other Christmas stuff and had it sent out to them. So my son calls me yesterday and says, Mom, what's going on? You know, this couch was supposed to be delivered before Christmas, guaranteed. Then there's a, you know, oh, December 29th. So I call up Wayfair to find out what's going on. The girl tells me, I'm sorry, ma'am, but it's out of stock and uh, it won't be available until March. (laughs) I said, excuse me, March? It won't be available? Can I speak to a supervisor? They put me on with this woman. They offered me 10% off for my next purchase if you can believe that. Did they and, refund uh, your money? They they would refund my money and give me 10% off the next purchase. But so my money's out there. I've got to wait up to 10 days to get my money back. And in the meantime, my grandchildren are sitting on a floor in New Brunswick. Okay, well, so, uh, I, okay, uh, I am going to ask Lisa about that. And I wonder uh, if we should be a little more cautious about uh, using big international... Anyway, Lisa, thanks for your call. Uh, the other Lisa Hutchison, mm. do you have any advice for her? So first of all, until she called, she was not uh, informed that this thing was out of stock. Yeah, which seems, you know, sort of speaks to a couple of things. But in my opinion, also, I would be extremely frustrated and unacceptable to not get some kind of notification. And so the transaction should not have been able to go through they should know if the stock is not available. And so, you know, and certainly to have made that purchase and hung on to it, at some point, you know, the, the retailer should have been back to let them know that it was unavailable, even, you know, within minutes of their purchase. They know that that's, they know what the inventories are, and especially on large purchases like that. So, um, yeah, that to, to me is, is unacceptable from a retailer like, like a Wayfair. And uh, you know what? I think people should check reviews because, uh, frankly, Wayfair is one of those. It's uh, very polarized. Some people have a good experience. A lot of people have a bad experience. Uh, you know, the other day we were talking about cell phone packages and and uh, Freedom Mobile being part of uh, the Roger Shaw deal if it goes through. And, and Ellen Roseman, our consumer expert, 
was saying, you know, they have really lots of complaints. So, you know, people just check out before you make that purchase. You know, what is, uh, sometimes the reviews aren't necessarily entirely fair, but if, you know, make sure you're going to somebody who has a reasonable track record. It's, it's hard, but it's something to do. Let's go to Edith in Mississauga. Hi, Edith. Good morning, Libby. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Um, my, uh, my, my beef is, uh, customer service calling in. I called Telus yesterday. I called them last week. I waited about over two hours. Oh my God. I couldn't get anybody. Um, I called yesterday. I waited for an hour and 37 minutes because I timed it. Uh, somebody came on the line and I told them what I wanted or what I was calling about, and she said, oh, you need to speak with uh, another department. Uh, yeah, okay, yes, I think I know where this goes. Yeah, she says, oh, it'll take about seven minutes, and if they don't come to you within a certain time, I'll call you back. Uh, right. Give me your number. I did all that, and I stayed on the line. I waited for over three hours, and the call timed out and disconnected. Okay, well, yeah, that it that does not surprise me at all. And um thank you Edith for your call. I mean, uh, you know, again, when it when it comes to telecoms, we pay some of the highest telecom rates, and that's one of the things that that I look at, can you reach somebody if there's a problem? And it's increasingly difficult, Lisa Hutchison, isn't it? It totally is. And I think the telecom are, you know, prime examples of that are very, um, the customer experience, particularly on the phone, is very long. And it is, you know, I, this is not uncommon to hear. I've personally had similar experiences that you're on the phone for. Wait times are very, very long. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, very difficult. Sometimes, uh, the, the wait times are very, are non, you know, the, it's non-existent. You're not going to get somebody on the phone. And if they don't have kind of bricks and mortar anywhere near you, you're, uh, out of luck. Um, yeah. And the wait times at the bricks and mortar can be long as well. Well, exactly. But at least there, you're kind of looking at a human, Mm-hmm. Who and, whose yeah. job it is to deal with you. Yeah, and you understand how many people are ahead of you in line. Yeah, and you understand how many people are ahead of you in line. I, I, I have an afternoon like that, too, <laughs> coming up. Um, mm-hmm. Let's go to David in Windsor. Hi, David. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my comment simply is that, um, like, I'm 70 years old, so I've seen the progression of you know, declining customer service for a long time. And uh, today in Ontario and probably most of Canada, in my view, there is no customer service compared to what there was when I was 20 years old. And what's really sad is the companies, they they have no shame about it. Like, um, for me, if I were a businessman and I had a customer service line where I was up to you know, two hour wait times, I'd be totally embarrassed even, even to tell people that they had a two hour wait time. I would just disconnect them. But these, <laughs> they these do that have sometimes. No, they have no they do that. You know? They do that sometimes. David, thanks for your call. Uh, Lisa, what do you say to David? Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I think a lot of it, I, and I, I'm not sure that they're some of these leaders are proud of that. And it speaks to, again, sort of back to the labor shortages. And I think where we're going to start to see customer service going, and unfortunately, I think some of it's going to lead to technology that's going to try to be able to solve some of the backlog of service issues. And I think, you know, from our, our team's point of view, you know, really customers and this is what I'm hearing from your callers, they want those interactions to be memorable in a good way and experiential and provide them 
um, you know, a great experience. And I think these, these businesses really need to understand because, you know, it just used to be the store experience, but now it's, it's, it's on social media. It's communicating with them on, by emails, on the phone, the call centers. You know, there's all these different touch points now that these businesses that can interact with the customer. And, you know, they're definitely need to figure out how they're going to be able to service all these different uh, message and touch points with the customer. Hmm. Okay. Uh, anything else you'd like to leave us with, Lisa? Uh, no, I'm really, uh, you know, great to, to hear from your, from your audience, uh, to hear what they're saying and uh, agreed, you know, we really want uh, our businesses to make sure that they're remembering about the customer and, you know, working really hard to create those relationships. Okay. Lisa, relationships. Lisa Hutchison from JC Williams. Thanks very much for that. Thanks. Bye now. Bye-bye. And people of other people want to talk about this free for all Friday is coming up and that is a good space to vent. Uh, right now we're taking a break and when we come back, we will be talking about another, uh, January thing, dry January. And, uh, this year we've got damp January. So we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. January is also the month for lifestyle resolutions and quitting drinking is always at the top of the list, hence the popularity of dry January. Now, this year, there's a new version Damp January. And Damp January advocates cutting back instead of uh, stopping completely. And it seems to be part of a trend for some of these self-improvement initiatives, whether they involve healthier eating or exercise. And the premise is that the cold turkey approach doesn't usually work, certainly not over the long term. And we're better off going with more modest and achievable goals. And I have to say, personally, I've almost cut out the wine that I love to have with dinner, but I didn't hesitate to toast the bride and groom at a wedding I was at. And I won't stress about having the odd tipple. I'm not going to feel like I'm you know, somehow falling short. What about you? Uh, and is there anything else that you have uh, tried to cut out during this month? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Kevin Shield, a scientist with CAMH's Institute for Mental Health Policy Research, and Sarah Dimmerman, a psychologist based in Toronto. Hello and welcome to you both. Thanks for having me on. Okay, well, Dr. Shield, uh, what do you make of this? Uh, and I think it's a trend across all the lifestyle modification that rather than, you know, quitting whatever cold turkey, big resolution to maybe just cut back and, and have smaller goals. I think it's great. So previously, the treatment goals for addiction, especially with uh, respect to alcohol, has been that the abstention was the only goal. And this can be seen through programs like the 12-step program. Um, but for some, that's not realistic, and they can't achieve that. And for those that can't achieve that, I think a harm reduction perspective is really a good option um, and will improve people's health. So if you're at three drinks a day, which many people are in Canada, going down to two drinks or one drink a day, you'll see health benefits from that. So a harm reduction, uh, reducing your alcohol consumption approach is a great way of improving your health. And a one-size-fits-all approach isn't necessarily right. And the health improvements by reduction are very real and beneficial. You know, you're talking about addiction, and I think that uh, people who have a glass of wine or two with dinner, um, they certainly wouldn't consider themselves 
addicted. Is there a different paradigm for people who are suffering with addiction and people who just want to cut back and be healthier? So there is in terms of uh, the treatment as well of uh, alcohol. So if you have addiction, uh, one of the problems is withdrawal. So if you try to cut back on your own and go completely abstinent, you're at risk for things like epileptic seizures. So if you're cutting back and you're noticing withdrawal symptoms, that is very dangerous. And so you should consult a doctor. Uh, You should consult your family doctor first about reducing your alcohol consumption if you think you're experiencing withdrawal symptoms that would put you at risk for something like an epileptic seizure. Um, but addiction has levels. So there are people who um, consume alcohol to a level where they wouldn't uh, have withdrawals. And for those people, um, we've seen a less is better approach can work with those people as well. So it's not just among people who aren't addicted to alcohol, um, people who are addicted to alcohol that would meet those classical uh, definitions uh, used by the DSM, which is a, a, a tool used to diagnose alcohol use disorders, that would be the less is better approach actually works with them as well. Okay, Sarah Dimmerman. So what do you find with your patients, clients, uh, um, in terms of cutting back? Do they kind of try to do too much and then feel badly about themselves if they fall short? Well, I think, as you said, this is the time of year where people often make resolutions, although I've noticed that people are not making resolutions as much as they used to. But one of the resolutions is usually around uh, food and drink. And possibly that's also because December tends to be a month where we often indulge more heavily in food and drink. Um, So, yes, I think that if you have an absolute anything, you know, I will stop drinking, I will stop eating everything with sugar, then that kind of law of deprivation, as we call it, makes people more inclined to want it. So they start thinking about it in their sleep and having dreams about it. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes that's why, as you mentioned earlier, the, the damp January might be more effective long term, because I think the complete abstinence to anything, unless you're on a treatment program potentially, but on your own complete abstinence and I'll never touch another drop of alcohol kind of thing uh, for somebody who is not maybe heavily addicted or diagnosed as an addict um, might not work long term. So I think in keeping with the everything in moderation approach um, with anything, whether it be drinking or food or exercise or anything like that is often a really good thing. And especially for people who, um, you know, who are not maybe, in treatment for heavy addiction that is impacting all parts of their life. Hmm. So I think we have to look at that as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I think a part of the problem is that if you take an all or nothing approach, and I've certainly seen it uh, with people who are dieting uh, or trying to change their eating habits, you know, they, they uh, have a uh, bingey kind of a day and it's like, I've, broken my diet i'm uh you know i'm i'm a worm and and it's all over right, uh, a kind of an all or nothing approach dr shield do you uh, find that kind of a, a that that happening with people yeah so there there definitely is like a rebound um effect uh after something like an intervention so family physicians they'll usually screen for harmful alcohol use so not necessarily use disorders but something subclinical. Um, and what happens is they'll give what's called a brief intervention. And then people reduce their alcohol consumption, but then it tends to increase over time. So even when you cut back, um, we tend to see that going back to your normal behavior patterns. Um, so the abstinence, there is you know, definitely a rebound, but even with the reduction, we see a rebound. So these behavioral patterns... Um, in terms of reducing, they have to be maintained over time using things like drinking diaries, things like that, that will, you know, reinforce those behaviors. So even if the, you reduce, that reduction is actually hard to maintain and you need to work at it. I'm going to take a call from Catherine in Toronto. I think uh, uh, she agrees with that. Hi, Catherine. Hi, hi how are you, Libby? Happy Fine. New Year. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, 
make a comment. Um, this is not, uh, this is a known fact that alcohol is both a carcinogen, high risk factor for most types of cancer, and it's a neurotoxin. So this idea of damp January is sort of ridiculous. Like, abstinence is the way to go. And even if you're in moderation, you're still ingesting neurotoxins and you're still uh, putting yourself at risk for cancer, whatever amount of alcohol you're consuming. Okay, well, there are uh, some studies. Uh, thanks for your call. Let's say that. Not everyone agrees. Uh, what I think that I've heard kind of from both of you is that if you go cold turkey, there's a chance that you will, uh, quote, fall off the wagon. And even if you sort of cut back, there's a chance that you will kind of revert to your old habits. Uh, so, Sarah, how do you avoid that or figure out which route is better for you? Well, I think that um, whether it's damp January or dry January, I think not only are people thinking of giving their bodies and their livers in particular a break potentially, but I think more importantly to think of it as an opportunity to have a clearer head so that they can self-reflect during the month of January and think about, you know, am I typically more of just a social drinker? Do I drink every day? Why am I drinking? What impact is my drinking having on my relationships? I work with people all the time where people have had huge conflict within their marriage or couple relationship because of drinking. The, 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 you know, the alcohol becomes like the person that the, uh, that the person is having an affair with, so to speak. Um, but it also has a huge impact on family members, on children, even adult children. So I think, you know, when somebody realizes that despite um, the impact that they're having on themselves and their family members is severe and they're still not able to stop, that's when it's much more extreme. And as Dr. Shield said, I think, you know, looking at lifestyle, behavior modification, so keeping diaries, thinking about, you know, what is it that causes me to turn to alcohol? Is it a way of kind of um, dampening my feelings? Is it a way of socializing? Do I feel that I cannot be um, social in a, at a party unless I've had drinks? That kind of thing. So I think working with somebody or working on one's own to look at lifestyle and to think about what causes one to drink um, is this is this is really what January could be all about, as opposed to focusing just on the alcohol itself. And uh, Dr. Shield, you mentioned the diaries there. Uh, I was online. I looked at all these apps to help you. There, some of them seem pretty involved. Uh, is that? And I know there are apps for weight loss and all this other stuff. Yeah, so we've actually done a systematic review. Uh, we've just updated the Cochrane systematic review for uh, digital interventions. Um, and we've seen a very clear effect of the uh, these interventions. But you have to be careful. It's about it's almost like the Wild West out there. There's a there's a lot of apps out there and it's really hard to pick the right one. If you're going to pick one, make sure it's based in something like cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational interviewing and brief interventions. Those ones have a scientific basis to them and will use those uh, proven techniques uh, to uh, help you manage your alcohol consumption. And uh, do you have apps that you recommend? Well, I don't have personal apps that I recommend. Uh, there are many out there. Uh, CAMH has one. Um, so if you go to the Center for Addiction Mental Health, we have one. Um, but there are many out there that work. Uh, and so they can be found uh, online through health providers like the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, and right now, we don't know exactly which one works best. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, I would imagine that some work better for different people. Um, it's it's uh, interesting. And I'm, I'm also wondering about, you know, the correlation with January, because, it, you know, that, that seems to indicate, okay, it's just a month. But, you know, when you're talking about a lifestyle change, that should be, I guess, uh, if forever. Let's hear from Jan in Scarborough. Hi, Jan. Hi, how are you? Today? Fine. Um, so my husband and I, we used to drink wine, and like many others during COVID, it became a little more 
a little more wine, and to the, actually a lot more, and to the point that my doctor in March of 2021 said, your liver enzymes are worrisome. So I took that as, okay, something needs to be done. And so she suggested that I do Mediterranean. So I looked it all up and I thought, okay, yeah, maybe I can do that. Gave my husband till his birthday and then on April 2nd of 2021, I stopped soda, I stopped refined sugar, I stopped processed foods and went to healthy eating. In one year, I dropped 30 pounds. Wow, congratulations. I lost my high blood pressure problem, off my high blood pressure medication and lost about three or four other health health-related things that I was just learning to live with. And so now, like, I, I call it Mediterranean-ish because, like, I'm not full hard on with Mediterranean. Like, I, I follow the outside of the grocery, the grocery store, and I try to very hard limit, even through this Christmas, limit alcohol, limit uh, refined sugar, I've and limit the processed foods. And I found it actually quite easy, and I thought that I was going to have a problem giving up the alcohol. And once she said, your liver enzymes are worrisome, and it wasn't just alcohol, it was everything I was doing, it came so easily. I thought, okay, I'm 60, 61 at the time. I need to smarten up here. And it worked, and it's still working, and it's still... Congratulations. Thank you. A year later, I kind of, you know, during Christmas, I indulged a little, put on about 10 pounds, and now I'm right back on hard, hard again saying, okay, that's it, no alcohol, no sugar, and it it's it's sustainable. It really is. Okay, Jan, congratulations and thanks for that. Wow, ten pounds over Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's quite a lot. I'm looking at the clock. We have to start to wrap things up. Uh, Doctor Kevin Shield, what would you like to leave us with on this? I think the message that I would like to leave your listeners with is less is better, um, that one size doesn't fit all, and health benefits can be seen by reducing your alcohol consumption. Um, if you can abstain, great. If you can reduce, that's great. Um, and the less you drink, the better. Okay, and Sarah Dimmerman? Uh, I think, you know, as, as your last caller said, you need to find what works for you. Um, and often, you know, we think we can do it alone, but um, often people need the help of a therapist or a support group, and there's so much online. So I would say to people, if you're having a hard time creating more of a lifestyle change as opposed to just a temporary change, then reach out and get help from somebody who can guide you through this process. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, Dr. Kevin Shield and Sarah Dimmerman. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I am going to be off for a few days. Jane Brown will be here tomorrow. Bob Comsick will be handling Free for All Friday. And if you couldn't get through today or any other day or have some other comments on what we've been talking about or on something else, give us a shout then. And we will talk soon. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.